Good morning. Our scripture reading, as John said, is from Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Again, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's page 861, Luke 5, chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of God. Take your time, Kate. (laughs) Just kidding. Good morning, church. If we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here with us this morning. I've been instructed by Miss Arlene to add one more uh, announcement to the list, and it is that the, se- the senior saints are going to Lancaster on October 13th. When I asked her what the event was, she said, oh, no, no event, just shopping. So if, if you want to go shopping on October 13th, there's a free bus that will take you all the way to Lancaster to shop. Um, there'll be, I guess, details about that in the Trinity News. Oh, there's a sign-up on the back table uh, if you'd like to... Sign up to shop. You can do that. Um, also want to let you know if you weren't able to make it yesterday to our conference with Shai Lin, uh, it, was, it was what it was billed to be. It was a gospel refresh. It was really sweet and encouraging, um, like drinking a big cold glass of Jesus on a hot day. Um, it, was, it was really wonderful. We are going to post those sermons on uh, the podcast and on the website in the next week or so, so you can be on the lookout for those if you'd like to catch up on that. One other thing I learned yesterday is that many of you have the word amen in your dictionaries and repertoires, so no expectations at all for that this morning. Um, Anyway, um, 1,092. I don't know if that number means anything to you this morning. 1,092. God willing, that is the number of meals you're going to eat between today and October 3rd, 2022. 1,092. Uh, or I don't know if this year is a, a leap year or not, so maybe it's 1,089. Um, or if you're into in, intermittent fasting, it's something like 730. Anyway, the question that we've been asking for the last few weeks is, what are you going to do with those meals? Well, this might sound like a silly question for you this morning, but do you have a theology of eating? Do you have a theology of eating? I'm, I mentioned a few weeks ago, but I do want to reiterate this because if you're visiting with us or new to us, this might seem like a silly premise to you. Um, But almost always we work consecutively through books of the Bible, one chapter at a time, one verse at a time. In the last year or so, we've worked consecutively through Esther and Hebrews and James and Lamentations. Next week, we begin a series in the book of Ephesians. We're just going to slowly plod through Ephesians. So we don't typically preach on specific topics like eating, like we're doing for these last few weeks. 
Uh, and this approach of just sort of methodically moving through the scriptures is safe because it lets God set the agenda and not, not me. That, that way the preacher each week isn't just talking about what his favorite hot button issues are or topics. You just, you turn to the next chapter and you talk about it, no matter if it makes you feel uncomfortable or awkward or controversial. Um, it's, it's safe because God sets the agenda. But sometimes there is a topic or an issue that we come to the scriptures with an agenda and we have a question for the scriptures and say, we want to learn from the whole of scriptures what God has to say about this one topic. Uh, and so we have come to the scriptures with a question. And it, it doesn't mean that we come to the scriptures and we, we kind of force our agenda on it. We come with an agenda asking a question, but we let God give us the answer without, without us forcing the answer into the text. And so the question that we've been coming for the last few weeks to the scriptures with is this. What did Jesus believe about food? So he probably ate somewhere around, I don't know, 22,000 meals, something like that, during his short life. And we've been asking ourselves, are there any detectable patterns in the way that Jesus ate that we ought to consider as we eat? Not what we ought to eat. We're not here talking about kale this week, right? We're talking about how we should eat and with whom we should eat. Um, so in the next year of the roughly 1,100 meals that you're going to eat, why do you pull up a chair and reach for the fork? I know you'll be hungry. I know that you need the food to do your job well, to think clearly, to care for your family, to exist. We all need food for all of those things. But is there anything else that you would like to try to do with those 1,100 meals? I guess what I'm trying to say is food matters. And this is what we've been circling around for the last few weeks. And today we're going to conclude this short exploration of how Jesus weaponized his meals for mission. And it just so happens that Luke is actually the best guide to helping us develop a Jesus-centered view of our dining room tables. Luke's gospel is uniquely, and all of the Bible is uniquely filled with stories about Jesus eating with people. It's such a prominent theme that one commentator writes that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So I don't know if this little series has felt a little bit intrusive to you. Like, I do my church stuff on Sundays, thank you very much. But what Jesus' rhythms of eating and drinking do is stretch us all, stretch us all toward the fact that we cannot do all of our life with God in one building on one day, one morning of one day. Now, many of us in here might struggle with this idea. I don't know. The, the idea of church like being the default one-day scenario. We know how to pull Sundays off, right? We've got, the, we've got the conferences that we're able to pull off. We can pull them off pretty well, all the events that we gather for. We've got the greeters, and we've got the counters, and we've got the ushers, and the sound people, and the teachers, and the preachers, and the musicians. We got all that down. We got the details down. I think we know how to highlight and celebrate the gospel when we come together in an organized fashion. We're pretty secure in what we do when we gather. Where things get a little murkier for us, I think, is what to do when we go from this place, when we scatter. I think a lot of us struggle with how to live the rest of our lives with gospel intentionality in the ordinary, everyday stuff of life, with the ordinary people in our life, next door, across the street. 
But thankfully, the dining rhythms of Jesus demystify our mission. The dining rhythms of Jesus demystify what we're supposed to do when we leave this place. Jesus' rhythms give us inspiration for what to do when we scatter. Suddenly, mission becomes less scary and way more tangible and accessible. It becomes more about a way of life that fits in with the ordinary mundane rhythms of our lives, like eating and drinking. A quick review of Jesus' rhythms finds hospitality at the very center of everything that he did. In fact, this helps to clarify our big idea for today. This is the big idea, the one thing that we take home from our text in Luke 5. Jesus accomplished his mission by eating and drinking with sinners and saints, and he calls us to do the same. Jesus accomplished his mission by eating and drinking with sinners and saints, and he calls us to do the same. Now, that word mission probably like flies off our tongues a little bit too easily around here. So let me, let me read it again. Jesus accomplished his mission by eating and drinking with sinners and saints, and that's how we will too. Well, what was his mission? Well, all the way at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke actually tells us. He tips us off. It says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This, for all intents and purposes, was Jesus' job. That's why he came. To save us from the penalty that our sins have incurred. But what were Jesus' tools for his job? Like, you know, a carpenter has his hammer, a baker has his rolling pin, an attorney has her law books, whatever they have. Um, all these things help them to do their job. Well, what was the, one of the primary tools in Jesus' toolkit to do his job? Food. Luke 7, Jesus came eating and drinking. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save. How did Jesus come? Eating and drinking. So throughout Luke, we find Jesus capitalizing on the ordinary needs of hungry stomachs to meet the spiritual needs of hungry souls. So as Jesus was wrapping up his earthly ministry, here's what he said to his disciples, and really to all of us as his disciples. In John 20, he says, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you in the same way. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So if we are sent like Jesus was sent, and if Jesus was sent eating and drinking, does it not follow that we are all sent eating and drinking? This is what Jesus was calling for from Levi, too, uh, in our text from Luke 5 that we just read. And what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It just means we go where he goes. We do what he does. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. More crudely, we eat like he eats. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So what I want to know of you this morning, what I want to know of me is this. Could we just substitute Jesus' name in there in the sentence that we just read? Like this. Throughout Josh's life, we find him capitalizing on the ordinary needs of hungry stomachs to meet the spiritual needs of hungry souls. Could, could that be said of me? Could it be said of you in your life's rhythms? In the last 1,100 meals that you've had, so all the way back to October 3rd of 2021, and we are in the middle of a pandemic, so I understand that, I don't know, our, our math is probably thrown off by that. But what I want to know is, have you invited anyone into your home or out to eat for the express purpose of caring for their soul or of introducing them to Jesus? Has any one of those 1,100 meals been spent on that? If not, 
I think you might be missing out on a beautiful, if not delicious, way of following Jesus and living out the mission that he's given to each of us. So what's been your strategy to make disciples and then mobilize disciples, put tools in their hands to faithfully follow Jesus? That's what our mission statement here is at Trinity. Back when we had our little bulletin, you'd see it at the top. Every, every Sunday we are here to make and mobilize faithful disciples of Jesus. In God's crazy, awesome providence, we get to disciple, do this disciple making with steak in our mouths, with sweet potatoes on our plates, and with butterfingers stuck in our molars. I love when the butterfingers get stuck in my molars. You just get to enjoy the thing for like an entire hour. It's a deeply delicious privilege that God has given to us to do mission over meals. This is what we find Jesus doing again this week in our text, capitalizing on a common need, hunger, to meet a deeper need, grace. Whether we realize it or not, something intangible happens when people eat together. A common need is met with a shared provision. The meal creates an experience of of oneness, of, of community. This is why lots of business deals take place when people have drinks in their hands or whether when they're sitting around a table with food on their plates. I was talking to my friend Frank this week and he was saying one of the ways that he gets some of his subordinates on board with a particular idea he has is he takes them out to lunch. Something intangible happens around meals and Jesus knew this. Jesus accomplished his, meeting, uh, his mission by eating and drinking with sinners and saints and he calls us to do the same. So let's bounce up to the beginning of this story in Luke 5 that Kate just read for us. The very beginning of this story in verse 27. I think this is funny how this starts out. So Jesus calls Levi to follow him in verse 27. And Levi drops everything right then. And there's so much we could say about him dropping everything and following Jesus. Um, But that's not our focus today. We'll circle back to this one day and we'll sort of unpack the original intent of that detail. But our focus today is to see how Jesus weaponized his meals to do his messianic work. And so that's kind of where we're focused today. So Jesus calls Levi. And then Levi follows him in verse 28. And where does Levi follow Jesus to? This is what I think is funny. In verse 29, Levi follows Jesus to Levi's house. This would be like me walking up to Arlene Smith after the gathering and inviting her to lunch and saying, hey, Arlene, why don't you just hop in your car and follow me, follow me, and then driving to her house, (laughs) hopping out of the car and asking her, what's for lunch, lunch, sister, right? Jesus is intruding on Levi's turf for the sake of the mission. That's the first thing that we see here, Jesus's missional intrusion, intrusion. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that you need to invite yourself over to your neighbor's house for dinner. Arlene, what is for lunch, though, today? (laughs) That'll work. That'll work. (laughs) But I am saying that you might have to invade a neighbor's turf to engage with them where they're comfortable. So if you see a neighbor or a friend doing lawn work or on a walk or taking the dog out, You may need to whisper a prayer under your breath to the Lord, ask for help and courage, and then walk over there and engage with them, all the while knowing that, yes, you want to get to know this person for who this person is, but you also want to introduce them to the best person ever, the world's greatest person, Jesus. In another intrusive text, we find Jesus 
calling Zacchaeus out of a tree and saying, dude, get out of there. I'm coming to your house today. Come on, let's go. I'm coming to your house. See, Jesus doesn't just forgive sinners. He befriends sinners. If we want to bear gospel fruit, we have to be willing to intrude on turf that is less comfortable for us and more comfortable for them. One creative way I've heard about this working out is from our members, Dan and Joan Lloyd. Their neighborhood through the years has hosted what is called Pizza Nights. And the folks on their block and from beyond their block, I think, gather weekly for a meal. From what I've heard, it always happens at night, but it's not always pizza, but it's still called Pizza Night. Anyway, uh, I asked him about it this week, and he said there are a number of believers who come, but there are also a number of unbelievers as well. And he said that they always start with prayer and that spiritual conversations are common. This is a great way of following Jesus' example of eating and drinking with sinners and saints as a means for mission. And the glory of this particular model, I think, is that you get to follow Jesus' example in at least two ways. Sometimes you play the gracious host. We saw that a few weeks ago in in Jesus feeding the 5,000, the host. But sometimes you also play the intrusive guests. So they rotate homes every week. You get to play host and guest. It's just an idea for you to consider. Maybe there are a few families in your neighborhood that might be interested in pizza night without the pizza. You could totally just call it food night, and it would probably do the same thing. Maybe not as creative, but collectively, let's dream about what God might do as we follow Jesus into mission by engaging on the turf of our unbelieving friends and neighbors like Jesus does here with Levi. Community group leaders, I would just encourage you to maybe make this a part of your conversations this week, even if it's just a small part, discussing how we can create new rhythms in our lives that look like Jesus' rhythm here in Luke 5. But now all of us, I just kind of want us to collectively pull up a chair and sit at the table here with Jesus in Luke 5 and look around the table and see who's sitting at the table with us. Check out who Levi brings to the meal and then check out who Jesus brings to the meal. I think both are instructive. Levi brings his friends to meet Jesus, but Jesus brings his disciples to meet Levi. Let's take a closer look at Levi's awkward guest list. Levi's awkward guest list. Well, the Pharisees are, I don't, I don't know exactly where they're at in this whole scenario. I imagine them maybe gathered outside of the house and fuming about this. They seem to expect that a respect expect that a respected religious teacher should strive to be serious and strict and buttoned up. But here we find Jesus embracing a really awkward guest list, pulling up a chair and eating with them and drinking with them. And his willingness to do this scandalized the religious right of his day. Uh, Robert Karras says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Because of who he ate with. Jesus got himself killed. And I think, that's, I think that's probably true. I wonder if you've ever eaten with anyone controversial. I wonder if you've ever eaten with anyone controversial for the purpose of giving them the gospel. It's a hard question. It was a hard question for me this week. But this is Jesus' life. His life was built around this rhythm of eating with difficult people for the purpose of giving them the gospel. And so Levi's compadres here, they make up a very motley crew. 
So Levi's friends. In verse 27, we found out that Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors were totally hated, probably even more hated than they are today. But it may be not unlike the way you feel every check you get when you see the IRS sneaking more and more money out of your check. Uh, The only way these dudes, these tax collectors, made money was to overtax people higher than the, Roman, uh, than the Roman tax rate. And they were constantly trying to widen their margins, margins for personal profits. They were sleazy cheats, and everyone knew it. That's why this move was so controversial for Jesus. And to make matters worse and more complicated, Levi is Jewish and not Roman. So he's ripping off his own people to fund a vile, God-hating Roman government the same government that would crucify Jesus in just a few months' time. But look in verse 29. Who is sitting around Levi's table at the party? More tax collectors. Levi got all his colleagues and his buddies and his friends and brought them to the meal with Jesus. More dregs of society. Most Jews would have avoided these dudes, Jew and dude in the same sentence, not healthy. Most Jews would have avoided these tax collectors like the plague, but not Jesus. Jesus walks right up, right up to Levi's toll booth and says, follow me. And then he walks into a party full of Levi's hated colleagues. There is something about Jesus that makes sinners and tax collectors want to be near him. Is there anything about you at all or me that would make people who disagree with you want to be near to you? Levi is a brand spanking new believer of Jesus. And what does he do? He wants to bring his friends in on this amazing privilege, meeting the God-man, meeting Jesus. And I wonder if we have lost the awe of our privilege, Trinity. Have we let our time in prayer and in the word go because we've forgotten that we get to commune with the King of Kings? It's no wonder we've lost our hunger to introduce our friends to Jesus when we've lost our own hunger to be with Jesus ourselves. Can we pray, just in your heart right now, pray that God would renew this hunger in you, that you would be hungry and thirsty for righteousness and for more and more of Jesus, and that would fuel a desire to tell friends and neighbors about Jesus. Well, look who else Levi brings to the feast. And I bet you probably missed it when we read it, uh, when Kate read it a few minutes ago. But look how this is framed by Luke, and then look how it's framed by the Pharisees. Um, In verse 29, Luke says, There was a large company of tax collectors and others. Then in verse 30, the scribes and Pharisees, describing the same group of people, says, The tax collectors and sinners. Anybody hear the difference? Luke calls them others, the Pharisees call them sinners. The Pharisees instinctively looked down their noses at people who they deemed to be less than sinners, who deserved nothing but to be quarantined away from the righteous. Even this is instructive for us, I think. As followers of Jesus, we are called to see every soul as equally valuable and needy for the grace of Jesus. Last week, we sang this lyric in one of our songs. It said this, Your image bearers on the earth We'll never know how much they are worth unless we love and help them first and show the way to you. Take that in. 
the image bearers of the earth will not know how much they're worth. And they're worth so much because they're made in God's image. Let it break and disturb you that they will not know about their infinite worth because of what God, the image of God placed on them unless we tell them and show them. Think of the faces. Think of the names. Every human ever has been born in the image of God. We are all image bearers from the greatest to the least. This is why the violence and the vitriol on social media right now is just so, so sad. We are tearing to shreds image bearers. It's why all of us need to check our opinions, all of us, no matter what side you're on, on COVID and politics right now, and be careful in how we express them. I haven't experienced that here. You've all been very gracious, no matter which side you land on. So I'm not calling anybody out specifically here. I'm just saying we need to be careful and analyze our lives. Those people that you just can't stand because they have landed somewhere different politically than you, those are image bearers, just like you. They are every bit in as much need of grace as you are. If you can't eat with someone because you differ with them politically, you've probably stumbled upon your God. And that's a God that will leave you restless and reckless. The problem is, though, that many of us think that we are the good guys for holding the line where we hold it and then holding that line against other human beings made in God's image. So it's, I think it's tempting to dismiss the Pharisees as the bad guys here. They're framed that way throughout the Gospels, and there's some truth to that for sure. But just know that this whole time they're thinking of themselves as the good guys. They were the people that were concerned to keep the rules and to do what good people should do. So when we are tempted to feel contempt for certain groups of people, and we're tempted, tempted to feel that that contempt is warranted, we ought to check ourselves and beware here, because Jesus here is crossing lines of contempt because of his love for sinners. Many commentators think that these others, as Luke describes them, and sinners, as the Pharisees describe them, many think that these others were likely prostitutes. The Jewish tax collectors would have been the only ones wealthy enough in that society to have afforded their services. So we've got Jesus sitting at a table with the social dregs of society. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with them. Jesus goes and eats with them. If someone would have taken a picture of Jesus that night and posted it on Insta, he probably would have been canceled by some of us. Jesus was not hanging out with the good guys here. These were the women of disrepute, men who smelled like pot, other businessmen whom the Jews despised because they lied and cheated them of their money on behalf of Rome. There are specific people that I have in my mind right now that I have thought about in this way. I've looked down my nose at them. I've thought of them as hopelessly lost. I've thought of them as sinners and not others who just need the hope of the gospel. I've repented this week and I've asked for grace to intrude on their turf for the sake of their eternal souls. Ask me about it sometime. Check in on me and see if I'm doing it, please. So we are, we're pulling up our chairs to the table, we're putting our napkins in our laps, and we are looking around the table to see who else has come to this feast. And I think who Jesus brings to the feast can 
totally diffuse some of the fears we might feel about inviting some of those sorts of people into our lives. Levi brings his friends to meet Jesus, but Jesus brings his disciples to meet Levi. Now, I'm sure one of the reasons Jesus brought his disciples was to model for them what they were supposed to do on mission once his mission was done, once he had died and risen and had ascended back into heaven. He was showing them the way to continue the Jesus mission. Jesus came eating and drinking to share the message, and he sends us, he sent them, and he sends us in the same way. So let me just say, if you are particularly gifted at conversation, if you have a warm personality, if you enjoy having company into your house, you may very well have the same kind of influence that Jesus is exerting here on his disciples. You could have that same kind of influence on the people around you in this room. Invite neighbors into your home and then bring others along with you and model for them the way so that they too can do the same after learning from you. But it doesn't take too much creativity to think of some other benefits of bringing other believers into the mix like Jesus did, of bringing other believers into the mix when we have our neighbors over or we go to movies or we go to ball games or whatever. This is a real strategy, people. And it's subtle here in the text, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really a helpful tool for us as we consider how to do this practically. When we have done this in our family, we haven't just invited neighbors over. We've invited other friends who will help carry the preparation, the work of the preparation, and then of the conversation. We get to share in the mission together. So I think we ought to follow both Levi's and Jesus' lead here, inviting our unbelieving friends to the table or to the game or to, you know, whatever. But we don't have to ride solo. Ask some other of Jesus' disciples, someone from your community group, to join you as you engage with these neighbors for their eternal soul's sake. Your neighbors aren't just your neighbors. They have a soul. They will spend forever somewhere. And if you don't tell them about Jesus, who will? You're not in charge of the fruit that comes from it. God is good and sovereign in all of that. But he has called us to plant seeds. So like Levi, bring your friends around the table to meet Jesus. Then, like Jesus, bring Jesus' disciples around that same table to meet your neighbors. Follow both examples here. And just pray like crazy and see what God might do. Now, does this have to happen over a meal? I don't think so. Cultivating community and investing in the mission certainly involve more than meals. But it's impossible to conceive of doing either effectively without meals, at least if we want to follow Jesus' lead. Jesus intruded for mission. Jesus included the excluded at this meal. But next, we see the direction of all this, kind of like the arrow that points us to the reason why Jesus is doing this. What is Jesus aiming at? Well, verses 31 and 